This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. McDonald's is celebrating their crew members who help everyone feel a sense of community whenever they stop into a Mickey D's. Whether you know that one crew member who always remembers that you like your Big Mac with an extra pickle or the crew member who always greets you in the drive-thru with a warm smile, thank you McDonald's crew members everywhere for making our McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. I don't have lately. I have always. I have a constant blur of plates spinning and knives on the floor and needy, panicked faces at the window, of which you are but one of many. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. And I'm Patrick Willems. On today's episode of Decoding TV, we're going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 11 of Andor, entitled Daughter of Ferrix. This episode was directed by Benjamin Karen and written by Tony Gilroy. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com and email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Decoding TV. Patrick Willems, very different to see you again today in your normal environs. We were just hanging out in Hawaii last week. It seems like just yesterday, probably because it was... Not that long ago that we were just hanging out. Well, uh, you, you spent a bit longer in Hawaii than I did. So yes. you really – I got back a while ago. You mm-hmm. just got back. Yeah, I did just get back into the dreary rain of Seattle. It's a huge come down. Uh, but you know what brings me back into that Hawaii mood is watching episodes of Andor featuring Niamos with Patrick Willems and talking about it here on Decoding TV. It, so. it reminds me of uh, standing next to you. Watching the sunrise over the Hawaiian Islands. Yeah. Talking about Cyril Karn, our favorite TV character. Exactly. Okay. Who's back in this episode? Thank God. Okay. Oh, thank God. Um, so I want to talk about a bunch of feedback and emails that we've gotten in the last week. Um, yes. A lot of, lot of feedback over at uh, Decoding TV. Yeah, go ahead. Furious at uh, – oh, oh. <laughs> as usual, David – what did I get wrong this time? No, 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 not much I got wrong. But I'll say a lot of people emailed in at decodingtv at gmail.com. A lot of people tweeting at us at decodingtv. Um, I would say the biggest complaint with last week's episode, a lot of pushback on me and something I said last week's episode. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in this week's episode probably. But uh, last week I was saying how I thought that the – the plotline with Mon Mothma and her daughter and uh, giving up her daughter to Davos Skeldon's family uh, was not well fleshed out enough, in my opinion. And and you made the terrible mistake of agreeing with me, Patrick, uh, which is not something you should ever do on a podcast because it sets you up as a target. Uh, you, um, you'd think I'd have learned by now. Uh, seriously, seriously. So uh, a lot of people basically said, wow, David, it's ridiculous that you don't think uh, that the show has done enough to establish that Mom Mothma wouldn't want to marry off her daughter, right? And I think the one thing I would say about it, and I, I guess like it's possible I did a poor job of conveying my complaint, right? Like that's I don't very possible. honestly, David. I remember that our conversation pretty vividly. Mm-hmm. I remember the the point you brought up. I remember my explanation for why I think I didn't feel quite as strongly as you, but what I I. I like what I thought was slightly lacking in that storyline in those few episodes. And, uh, you know, I think we articulated it pretty clearly. And again, these are our opinions. 
yeah I think there's no that, right or wrong well i would say if anything by the way this episode like further reinforces my point from last week um which is i think people are bringing a lot of their own feelings to the situation right they're like oh i have a child i would not want them to be married off to a thug uh and their family and it's like okay that's a very reasonable thing for you to think and we right? are here like, to 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 childless adult men and yeah, 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 yeah. uh <laughs> yeah and that's and that's very like it's reasonable for you to feel that way like you know but what my point is is like we don't know this is a a, a long time ago in a galaxy far far away uh, we don't know enough, in my opinion, about Mon Mothma's upbringing, about her feelings about Chandrillan customs, about her relationship with her daughter, for me to have a strong opinion about Mon Mothma's feeling about the situation. That was my point. Is like, um, I don't bring any like Earth, or I try as little as possible to bring like my Earth Earthling um, sensibilities to what's going on in Star Wars. Obviously, like these are humanoids or humans and you know so i i get that like there's there's a lot of things that we assume that are similar uh but given that like the show has already set up a challenging relationship between mon mothma and her daughter given that it's already set up that like she has kind of broken away from chandrill and customs but we i don't think we really fully know how she feels about them that's what i was talking about is like i don't think we have enough detail there for me to feel strongly about it and in fact you know this episode further complexifies that equation um so I, yeah david i yeah i i think what you're saying is totally fair and um i will say for my in my opinion i think the developments in that storyline in this episode uh made made me more invested in the mon mothma stuff than i'd been over the past two or three episodes i think that's uh, true i think that's true yeah go ahead sorry yeah i i think i think i mean we'll get into it when we talk about that spe- like the episodes like in detail but uh I, for me just uh literally just having her talk to vel about this stuff yeah i i think made it feel a lot more real and i and and a lot more emotional uh than it had been and again because most of the, the mon mothma stuff in the past few episodes was her talking numbers with banking people and um and and this episode made that stuff more emotional and uh and yeah and i i'm i'm, I'm back on board the mon mothma train now yeah uh, I agree. It's uh, this episode did some good clarification of the Mon Mothma stuff. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. But anyway, I felt the need to respond to people being <laughs> really uh, pushing back a lot on my statements about the Mon Mothma plot. It's not. It's not. I am fine with the. Con- I understand the concept of. Oh, she's very protective of her daughter. I, I get that. But I'm like, I-, I just want the show to give us more on that front because I don't assume that. Like she's part of a. Uh, you know, she's in the Senate. Like, how has that shaped her feelings on like her responsibility? You know, like, it's just like there's all these things I don't feel I know to understand her thoughts on it beyond I, just just beyond just a mother wouldn't want her daughter to be married off to a thug. Like, okay, right. yes, but that's like a very simple um feeling, in my opinion. That like I that I think the show is more complex than that, and I think this episode shows that that's the case. So, I, yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I think the larger thing than just being protective of her daughter is really wanting to leave Shandrill and Customs behind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. like that is in her past, and uh, and she do- and and she thought that was all behind her, and she would never ha- like. She thought that even though she was like forced into this, you know, basically arranged teenage marriage, that she could then, you know, I I I, I mean. Th- th- 
Yeah, a, she, she uh, wouldn't have to – her daughter wouldn't suffer the same fate basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little like I can make a better life for my daughter than I had myself. All right. Uh, but thank you also, for all the feedback. Yep. Go ahead. I, I, I will say, David, you you did have opinions about Star Wars on the internet. So pushback <laughs> about literally anything mm-hmm. was inevitable. Well, uh, yes, it's fair. But I don't want my opinions to be nonsensical. And I appreciate people trying to make that the case. Uh, keep Trying to keep me honest there. So anyway, thank you for the emails at decodingtv at gmail.com. Also the comments at youtube.com slash decodingtv. Okay. Also, you uh, are now going to get pushback uh, from people who like the storyline but don't have children mm-hmm. and yes. and who are gonna say yes. hey don't put that on me david chen uh okay uh, that was you that said that i didn't say anything about uh about the uh <laughs> the Just state like- of your you know uh child bearing situation um the uh okay other thing something else people said thx eleven thirty eight. um a lot of people have said hey the uh Narkina 5 storyline is a clear allusion to THX 1138. Um, I think that's very true. Uh, the plot line of both the movie and also the Narkina, the Narkina 5 storyline, uh, they're very parallel. Uh, the look and art direction uh, behind the prison itself, the uh, police robots in THX 1138 and the guards in Narkina 5, the outfits that the prisoners wear, like they're all, it's a clear visual illusion. Um, so I did just want to bring that up. I thought that was a cool way to allude to, pay homage to uh, one of George Lucas's films that obviously was a huge inspiration for the Rekina 5 stuff. And obviously George Lucas created Star Wars. So uh, I didn't know if you – we didn't really – I don't think we have mentioned the words THX 1138 on this podcast. Uh, and so I'm curious if you had any thoughts on on that parallel. Um, other, Not really other than uh... – I, I picked up on that vibe with the with the Narkina Five stuff, and um, and I also think after the previous episode came out, uh, there were a lot of interviews with the the people involved. They they, they were doing a lot of press for it, whether it was Toby Haynes or Bo Willimon, uh, or like uh, costume designers and on art directors, and um and multiple people like who worked on the show acknowledged that yes. THX 1138 was an influence. And uh, and what I like about this is that obviously THX 1138, you know, it is in it. I mean, it's a 70s sci-fi movie. It, it is a pre-Star Wars 70s sci-fi movie. Uh, therefore, it is like, you know, somewhat political. And uh, it's it's like this scary dystopian future commenting on our society of today. And the thing that I I know we're all aware of this, but so much Star Wars post George Lucas tends to forget that George Lucas was a political guy and uh, and always viewed Star Wars as having like a uh, you know allusions to real world politics. Uh, THX obviously has political aspects to it, and the stuff on Narkina Five I uh, really made me think. Like I think I think Lucas would really like this because this seemed like. It's not just interested in 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 the toys he created. It's also interested in the ideas that he was that he cared a lot about. And um, yeah, not, another cool thing about the show. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so wanted to acknowledge the THX eleven thirty eight inspirations. Uh, we got this email that I thought was pretty interesting. This one comes in from Brian N. Writing into decodingtv@gmail.com. Uh, about. Who is Luthen? What's Luthen's deal? 
Brian N. writes into decodingtv at gmail.com, quote, I think Luthen is a fallen Jedi in hiding. Here's why. And then he lists these reasons. Luthen has a kyber crystal. The first time we see him, he carries a pointless staff that retracts into itself and is stored within his cloak. Uh, in episode 10, he speaks the line, we took an oath. In episode 10, he's wearing a space cape. No other characters do that in the show. In episode 10, he, sa- he has sacrificed inner peace. He's damned for what he does. He has sacrificed everything. In my opinion, all of his beliefs included for the belief that the former order before the Empire and the Sith must be restored. End quote. What do you think, Patrick Willems? Is Luthen a Jedi? That is an interesting theory. Um, I... I mean, in in the new episode, we do see uh, his his cool ship is outfitted with some, you know, like this is not Jedi technology, but it you know it does have these like lightsaber esque little like blades that pop out on the side. Yeah, lasers. I thought they were. Yeah, lasers. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like like I don't think those are powered by kyber crystals, but mm-hmm. uh. M- it's an interesting theory. Uh, I'm I'm totally ready to be proven wrong. Um, I lean toward no. Uh, speci- okay, for two reasons. Um, the first, probably biggest reason is it feels like a very deliberate choice on Tony Gilroy's part to just make a Star Wars show with no Jedi to just mm. avoid that stuff as much as possible. To to like I don't not- I don't know if the word Jedi has been spoken on the on the show yet. I don't I don't I, think it has. Yeah. Um, it's possible. To, it's possible. If, if it has been, it's a, like a passing mention only. Right. Um, it seems to me like this is very much a show where like the mission statement is this is about the regular people, not about the magic wizards. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just keeping in mind like uh, w- like what the show seems to be aiming for and, and what its focus is, I would lean toward like, no, they're probably not going to reveal that a character is a secret Jedi. Um, although I am curious about that that little staff thing uh which we see again yeah. in this episode yes um but uh the other the other reason is um uh okay so david you have not you didn't watch uh obi-wan kenobi right correct okay i did that is a show that uh set in a kind of similar time period that mm-hmm. deals directly with jedi in hiding um and seeing what they have on that show and seeing the way they are hiding and being hunted down, I kind of doubt that Luthen would be hiding on Coruscant. Uh, well, he's hiding in plain sight, Patrick. That's obviously oh, he is, strategy. But, but they seem to like, have records of who all the Jedi are mm. and, and are like hunting – and, and, and like the Inquisitors are hunting them down like with a list. And, uh, and I feel like if they – you know – they're if they're a show and like no one knows what Luthen looks like right now. Um, and and I think that if he were a Jedi, there would probably be a record of him, uh, and they would probably have a little like hologram of him, and be, would be going around <laughs> looking for a guy with that face. Mm. And so there is my wow se- my second reason for why I don't think he is a Jedi. Um, that's uh, I don't have any I don't have any big theory. Uh, about him also also this this show seems to be avoiding the kind of thing where it's like oh then there's gonna be like uh a big reveal and this and this character is actually some you know 
like related to someone that we know uh it it, it seems to be mostly avoiding that kind of uh that kind of you know lore heavy payoff so uh so i lean toward no but i i've been wrong before and i very well will be wrong again all right uh, wait what, what do you think I mean, the thing about the Inquisitor is like a really compelling point, like that you just made, right? If he's being hunted down, or if the Jedi being hunted down, like, and it, it makes sense that there would be some record of Luthen, and, and he would not want to be seen on Coruscant openly, you know? Like, um, why? Why would he have a shop like a few blocks over from like uh, the headquarters of the people hunting him. I will say, first of all, you know, have you ever seen Breaking Bad? Does the name Gus Fring mean anything to you? You know, like I would say there are, you know, c- characters that hide in plain sight in TV shows. And also I would say that Luthen is so freaking badass in this episode that it did put a lot of fuel on the fire of the Luthen is a Jedi theory for me. So I, I am just going to, be a contrarian and say yes to this one um just to contradict you patrick so basically um, this way at least one of us will be right uh, mm-hmm. eventually exactly that's my whole that's my whole deal one other email from uh, someone lauren writing into decoding tv at gmail.com writes quote uh in thinking about the luthan monologue of Andor episode 10 couldn't help but laugh when considering how it compared to karn's love confessional in episode 9 arguably karn's speech to miro contained similar poetic imagery and word choice uh, to Luthen's, but the delivery has made all the difference. Luthen's sacrifice response sounded like it was coming from the depths of his, depths of his soul. Karns sounded like he practiced it in front of a mirror after rewriting it several times and storing the rough drafts in his private box. Acting! End quote. I, I would argue that they're both acting extremely well in that, in those scenes, you know? I remember listening to uh, the commentary of Boogie Nights with Paul Thomas Anderson, and there's that there's that whole stretch of the movie where Mark Wahlberg tries to become a pop star, and he does like the heat will rock you, you know, like that part. And sorry, Paul Thomas I, Anderson I, I did like, not know I was going to get David Chen singing yes. on this episode. Fantastic. And Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson is basically it takes a lot of skill to sing badly and convincingly, you know. And I think that's what we see with Cyril Karn talking to Dedra Miro in episode nine. So uh, they're both doing great acting, in my opinion. So Yes, yes. Uh, obviously, their speeches uh, were intended to have, you know, to affect the audience in different ways. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it for follow-ups. Thanks to, uh, for all the comments at decodingtv at gmail.com and youtube.com slash decodingtv. Before we continue, I want to acknowledge that this episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. Patrick, we love to get the feedback, even when it is pushback. We love to get the theories and wild speculations about what might be happening in this show. Uh, and that's true of not only Andor, but all the shows that we cover over at Decoding TV and A Cast of Kings. Um, it's no surprise that here at Decoding TV, we love the idea of community. And over the last decade, I've been really grateful to foster a community of TV lovers who enjoy each other's company. And we can bond over our shared excitement about the biggest shows in the zeitgeist patrick what's it been like for you this is our first like tv podcast together right it's been it's been pretty exciting and i i i gotta say i uh this hasn't been a surprise but it's been just great to see uh you know 
how 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 nice the the audience and and community that's built around this show has been. Uh, you know, I I I love I love interacting with uh, and chatting with uh, the listeners online. Yeah. Uh, they they have great input. Uh, and and they really like remember details about like like, like each episode yeah. and our, our our running bits and and things that we're bringing up. I, I I feel like they really know us. I agree. I agree. That's why I'm really proud and excited for Decoding TV to partner with McDonald's because they truly care about fostering a sense of community. And one of the biggest ways they do so is through their incredible crew members who work hard to make you feel like you're right at home when you stop into a McDonald's. Uh, I have a McDonald's down the street. It's like a mile away. I go there very regularly, and I'm always impressed by the level and quality of service there, uh, how fast it is, how friendly it is. Uh, it is always a great time, and I get uh, some delicious food out of it as well. So uh, really appreciate all of McDonald's crew members who make everyone's McDonald's visits more special. We really appreciate uh, all the work that they do to make this local McDonald's a key part of the community. It's always like full of cars when I stop in. And I know that's because uh, it's a great place to eat. It's a great place to stop in and get some delicious food. So those crew uh, members, they are, they are the opposite of ISB officers. <laughs> I'll say it right here. Okay. There you go. Um, but a huge thanks to McDonald's crew members everywhere uh, for making our McDonald's visits more special. McDonald's. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Yeah. We're both loving it. All right, Patrick, let's get to the episode of Andor. Fantastic. Uh, season one, episode 11. Only one episode remains after this. I can't believe we're almost done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so uh, sad. Why can't this go on forever? Why, why, why didn't they, why can't we have the old 22 episode network TV season model? I ask myself that question every time I watch Andor. Okay. Episode 11, Daughter of Ferrix. Let's start by talking about what happens in Ferrix. Now, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, um, you know, this episode basically checks in with virtually every single character in the show. Including um, Cyril Karn. He's back. Yeah, thank God. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, the Ferrix stuff and... Uh, all the stuff with Coruscant and Mothma, all that stuff. Uh, and then we're going to conclude with, uh, you know, the two biggest plot lines, in my opinion, the Luthan plot and also uh, the Andor and Melshi. The titular uh, role. The titular character. Uh, so I, I do want to start by saying that there is a scene on at the beginning of this episode where... Uh, we see like Andor and Melshi clinging on for dear life on Arkina Five, and Andor is doing his thing, giving a motivating speech. Like the you know the cruisers have left; they can't see you anymore. We're gonna be fine, you know. Uh, and then there is a very impressionistic dissolve into I think it's like a bottle of liquid on top of B two EMO is what it is. Yeah, well, well, we see uh, there's a cup on top of him. Yeah. That uh, that kind of like falls off. Then a, a couple seconds later, and uh, and Brasso catches it. But yeah, it's a uh, it's like an ultra close up of right. We're cup. we're basically what and look, Star Wars experts, correct me uh, here where I'm probably wrong. But I uh, but this actually I I know I I can tell you uh, I I know I'm wrong here. 
But um, this is the rare time in Star Wars that we pretty much have a POV shot from a droid's mm. perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I then think, we... I, I think we got one earlier this season as well. There was like when, okay. when, when B2 Mio, like when there was that, um, or not, not, I don't know if it was POV like first person, but it was like third person. It was like you're viewing it from b2 emo's perspective right when, when andor I, returns um to Ferrix, yeah i will say the 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 one other droid pov shot that i can think of in star wars is one of the weirdest uh visual choices i can recall in a star wars movie um which is david i, I don't know if you remember this it's in the phantom menace um it is in the scene when Little Anakin Skywalker is leaving home forever, mm-hmm. uh, and he's like in his bedroom packing up. Um, the scene—it's mostly just like kind of like r- standard coverage, like very, very, very neutral, uh, like kind of like just objective from the side, just watching Anakin packing up, and he's talking to C three PO. And then we just every so often just cut to a C three PO POV shot, this like tall shot looking down at Anakin. And it's weird because C three PO is barely in that movie. But um, but Lucas just randomly, you know, shows us his POV uh, yeah. a few times in that scene. Anyway, but here we have this shot like through, like through uh, the the liquid in a yeah. cup, and then we cut to like this extreme close up of like the eye yeah. lens of B two emo. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, I think uh, something that's really important in shooting movies and TV is like the transitions between things. And sometimes they're like really creative. There was one episode of a couple episodes ago in Andor where it's like, Ooh, like every transition was like amazing. And um, this one was just kind of like, there was a dissolve from the rock of Narkina five into like this thing. And I'm like, I, I wonder if this is trying to say anything about, you know, um, the oppressive nature of Narkina five compared to the oppressive nature of death that B2 EMO's experience. I don't know. I don't think so. But and it, it, when you see a transition like that, it makes you think like, what are they trying to say with this? So Right. Um, well, a thing that I was thinking about that's interesting about this scene, because then, because when we cut into this scene on Ferrix, uh, yeah. and especially once we pull back from the like, you know, extreme, super close up uh, uh, B2 EMO, like, eyeball shots um we then see brasso talking to him and in the background other people are basically marva has has died she has already died um we don't see her die and then people are are bringing her body in the background of the scene they're bringing her body out of the house yeah um and then brasso is talking to b2 emo and it's interesting because you like traditionally in star wars we see droids often as sidekicks are butlers uh are as you know obviously as like soldiers and stuff like that but yeah. uh this is like here b2 emo is is really like the way brasso talks to him it's like a cross between a small child and a dog yeah a pet like, of some kind yeah. yeah uh like he is sad uh yeah. he's like his, his his speech he's stuttering um and well he's always been stuttering because he's well, kind of a, he old has rope. but oh, yeah, but 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 i yeah. uh, usually like it the way i read the stuttering in, in past episodes was like oh he's old and not in great shape and now it's it sounds almost as if like he were crying uh and like trying to process what's happening yeah and, uh, and like doesn't fully understand things and it's it's sad and uh and and it, it almost makes me wonder if that 
that shot of like the liquid and then the eye is sort of like a visual representation of like like tears mm. welling yeah. up in his eyes. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, we just spent five minutes talking about one transition in the episode, so we're clearly going to be done with this podcast in about five hours. Um, but anyway, yes, Marva is died uh, in this episode, and there is a funeral prose- procession where they le- kind of lead her out the door, uh, and it's kind of it's pretty pretty lovely. It's a lovely scene. Everyone's gathered. She's clearly like an important person in the community, um, a daughter of Ferrix, as it were. And we see an Imperial Guard kind of chilling across the street. Uh, he is there. Sinta has started working at this cafe. I, I like that every single time we see Sinta here, she has integrated herself more into Life of Eric's. Like in three weeks or three episodes from now, she's going to have like a whole family there. Like <laughs> what was the assignment again? Oh, right. Watch Marva. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's not too dissimilar from the way she blended in with the Aldani people right, uh, right. over there when she was the one person who stayed behind after the mission. Yeah. And I uh, well, uh, yeah, the guy who is like watching her and yeah. like, and asks her what's going on is Corv. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, He's an imperial uh, guard or an imperial worker, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy who 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 uh, we see him in multiple scenes because in one scene he's he's talking to Bix, but uh, but he's often like. He, in disguise as like a regular Ferrix guy. Like he's the guy that we saw in the previous episode, like watching as like, they're bringing a doctor over to Marva. And, uh, and I do just want to point out that, um, the actor who plays him has a name that just sounds like a star Wars name. Mm-hmm. His name is Noof Usalam. <laughs> okay. And right. I, I believe he's just British, mm-hmm. uh, like many of the actors on the show, but yeah, uh, Korv is played by Nuf Usalam, um, and I just I, I like it when 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 a Star Wars actor basically has a Star Wars name in real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, there is a discussion about what happens to people on Ferrix when they die, and you learn that uh, the standard custom is for people to be their ashes to be combined with like a Ferrix brick, and then they become like part of the city, which I think is just so. Such a cool idea. I hate to go off on a tangent here, Patrick, but have you thought about how you want your remains disposed of when you when you pass away? <laughs> this is, is it, not the I thought this would be like a Star Wars tangent. No, not yeah, a, yeah. Patrick, let's contemplate our deaths kind yeah, of tangent. Yeah. I, I've thought a lot about it. And uh there is actually a facility in Washington State that will compost your body. You know, it will turn oh. your body into compost. Uh to help which, plants grow? Yeah, how plants grow or, you know, whatever you want to use compost for. But yeah, basically, um, and that's how I that's how I would like to go, personally. Uh, no cremation, no put me in a, a box. That's me personally. Uh, honestly, I was very impacted by Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. I know this sounds like possibly ridiculous, but like uh, when I watched that movie, I was like, this is... Um, the the One of the themes of that movie is how like it's important to accept that like one day we will like return to the earth and like become part of the planet again, which I don't think is really possible if you're um, as much, if you're in a casket with like, you know, all the stuff that goes into a casket. Uh, no, no uh, disrespect or, or dis- you know, commentary on what other people's choices are. Like, I'm, I'm just saying like, for me, uh, that re- the message of that movie really resonated with me, and so I would kind of like, yeah. If if there's a way for me to be like become part of the Earth again, that's kind of what I would like. But Patrick, 
And what about you? Similarly, ju- just like in Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, I would be I would like to be uh, put in a bubble and blasted into space. <laughs> No, I'm 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 I'm, I'm kidding. No, I, I, yeah. I, not, not, like yeah. I'm not trying to make light of like yeah, you, yeah, no, you, you have a really good answer to this, and um, genuinely, I have not thought about it that much. I don't. Uh, I guess what we're learning here is I don't contemplate my death that much because I'm going to live forever, man. Yeah. Um, but I uh, do it. I do it almost every day, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> what a so, revealing episode this is yes um we we, we learned that you, that you have mcdonald's about a, a mile down the road from your yeah. house and, and uh, also and that, that i regularly contemplate death that's correct yes um i don't know i mean like i'm not a religious person so i don't anticipate having like a a church funeral and stuff like that uh but as far as my my remains go i i don't know and i hope i i don't know I'll, get back to me about that all right, I'm, I'm going to get back to you literally every single day. No, I'm just joking. Uh, okay, so what else is at Ferex? Oh, yeah, so there's a scene where Ferex, uh, sorry, B2EMO, like, uh, doesn't want to stay in his house, you know, because Marva's not there and it's lonely and Brasso, he asks Brasso to stay behind and Brasso's like, okay, one night I'll stay, you know, in this house. Um, and here's my reaction to that scene, Patrick. Uh, number one, oh wow, B two AMO is really adorable, and it's really sad that Marva's not there anymore. And what a bummer! And of course, who who could say no to that voice and robot form, right? And also, I'd be pretty annoyed if I had a droid and it wouldn't do what I told it to. <laughs> I, I I mean, it's basically like. Oh, what if your like your friend dies and then their dog is there, and then it's mm. like, oh god, do I like I didn't like. I deliberately had chosen not to have a dog, and now I have this dog that I guess I have to take care of. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's I. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, the thing, the thing with the the Ferric stuff in this episode is that Marva's death really is kind of like, I guess, our little like inciting incident in yes. the episode it, that it propels then, like all virtually all the action in the show uh, in the episode is because of Marva's death or is related to Marva's death in some way. Right. Yeah. Most of the storylines involve people talking about or sharing the news of yeah. Marva's death and then talking about what what is going to come next because then they talk about, you know, obviously they're going to turn her remains into a brick uh on Ferrix, but also then they start planning the actual funeral, which we yeah. learn happens two days after the death. Yeah. So it's 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 two days until the funeral is happening. Yeah. And I have a feeling we're gonna see it in next week's episode of Andor. It would be pretty wild if they didn't show it, right? Like they're like, and tomorrow's the funeral, and then like cut to credits for a year, and then we don't see what happens. I think we're going to see what happens at the funeral. No, the so. next episode is just—it's like a long road trip about yes. Cassie and trying to make trying it home. Trying to get the to funeral. the funeral. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, one other scene that happens at Ferrex this week, uh, we see Bix, and her brain is all messed up. She's she's literally just like. Re- like re- replaying like or well, uh, this is like, the way like they want the show wants you to understand that she is still traumatized by what happened before but they can't actually play you the sound that she heard because there's no way for to replicate it right um so instead they uh play what people were saying to describe that sound <laughs> which i thought was just an interesting way of kind of evoking that feeling you know um but anyway 
Her brain's all messed up. So then we meet a character named Kasex, uh, who is an Imperial officer, and he takes Bix out from the brig or wherever she's at, and then takes her to another room, and then shows her a hologram of Anto Krieger. We finally uh, see him. This is the first time we meet Anto Krieger. Now, he's a, a guy. just uh, He's a dude. Like, he's not an alien or something like that. Uh, seems like a big dude. Uh, but this is our first time seeing Anto Krieger. I'm I'm curious if we're ever going to meet Anto Krieger. Like I don't. It would be really wild if Anto Krieger was just like an off-screen character that we never met ever in the show. Do you know what I mean? Well, considering what we hear is probably going to happen to Anto Krieger, uh, I would not be surprised if we never meet this guy. That would be pretty awesome. That's kind of cool. Like kind of a kind of a power move on the show's part to be like we're going to really get you invested in this character but you're never going to meet him but he's going to be critical to the last like four to five episodes of the show uh yeah we'll, we're going to talk about him a lot when whenever anto krieger's not on screen people will be asking where's anto krieger uh we'll uh, show you david, holograms of anto krieger david you know? you know that's not true because cyril karn exists that's and true cyril karn is on screen i'm like i don't need anything else right now mm-hmm. this is so everything true. i want yeah uh, but, you know, we see Casex uh, interrogate uh, Bix. And also Korv is there too, the mm-hmm. guy who no longer in disguise, now in his regular uniform. Mm. And he says, is this the guy that you introduced Cassian to? Like they're trying to figure out if Anto Krieger is Axis is Luthen. And Bix looks horrible in this scene. You know, she looks completely destroyed. And we don't even hear her answer, I think, because she's trying to be like, okay, well, if I say no, which is the truth, they won't believe her. And if she says yes, then that's lying. And she's going to get tortured no matter what, I think, is right. kind of her calculation there. So she's just completely and utterly defeated at that point. Uh, it's brutal. Brutal scene. Yeah. So. The uh, the Empire. Real bad. Yes. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> like these guys. <laughs> wow. I hope well, they all get blown up. Bold, <laughs> bold stance, Patrick. Bold stance. All right. What else uh, do we hap- have happen? So that's like all the Ferric stuff, basically. If there's going to be a funeral, that's probably where the finale is going to go to. Uh, we 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 check in with uh, the Bell Hammer guy again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we also check in with Miro. That's how we learn a lot of this uh, exposition. And Miro's like, no, we must allow the funeral to proceed because previously they wouldn't have allowed it. But she's like, we got to get everyone you know, going to this funeral because like all plot lines will converge on Marva's funeral next week. Cyril Karn's going to be there. Andor's going to be there. Possibly Luthen. Like everyone's going to be at Marva's funeral. It's the hottest ticket in town. So, uh, okay. There is a brief scene at Coruscant with uh, Clea and Vel. Vel shows up at Luthen's place and she wants to tell Clea that, or she wants to tell Luthen that Marva's dead. You know, and they have this cool little interaction, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, where Clea kind of gives her version of Luthen's speech from last week, basically like this is what I do that you don't understand. And I this mean, is a- you yeah. played the clip at the yeah. start of the episode, but uh, but but what well, what's the line about like uh, you know, because Vela has some line about like I I got him I got, I got him Aldani. What have you done lately? And then Clea says, I don't have lately. I have always. I have a constant blur of plates spinning and knives on the floor and needy panicked faces at the window, of which you are but one of many. Yes. And uh, I thought this is a cool scene because basically this is a scene where two characters are 
one character is giving just a very basic piece of information to another character. And instead of just having a phone call with Luthen, uh, they use this scene to kind of develop character to, to, to give you more information about Clea and what her mindset is and also develop the relationship between these two, which is clearly very tense between yes. Clea and Vel. Right. Uh, a couple things I, I, I want to mention here. Um, I like how no one can walk into uh, Luthen and Clea's store without being buzzed in. So Vel is just like loitering outside uh, until Clea happens to look up and be like, oh, fine, I'll, I'll let her in. But, but also considering that we saw before, um, I think was it in episode seven, uh, Clea with a big hood traveling all around Coruscant to get to this like secret meeting place to talk to Vel. She must be pissed that Vel just showed up at the store, uh, considering like how how secretive their previous meetings had to be. So obviously doesn't like this. But uh, and the other thing that I wanted to mention was um David uh I when Clea has the line about the uh the like blur of spinning plates, um I ac- I thought of you and your millions of podcasts that you always have going all the time. And I was like, David's got to start using this line mm-hmm. when he's telling people mm-hmm. about like, you know, what, what his day-to-day life is. Well, when Patrick came to me and was like, let's talk about Andor. I said, I have a constant blur of spinning plates and knives on the floor and needy faces, needy panic faces at the window of which you are one. That was the exact quote. So it, it was uncanny to watch a show and see my words come out of Clea's mouth. I know. Um, okay. So, so that's the scene with Clayendel, and he, you know, and and also look, I I will tell Luthen where the information came from, basically. Yes, you know, and Um, also we can't forget that these people, like, like after everything that Cassian has been through in the past three episodes, these people, his former allies, are still trying to kill him. (laughs) That is their goal. The reason they're like, oh, Marva died, and you should know this because. Cassian might come back to go to the funeral. It's so they can kill him. Yes. Everyone is against Cassian. L- l- like Luthen and co want to kill him. The ISB wants to capture him and, and torture and interrogate him. Uh, Cassian's only ally right now is like Melshi, I guess. Uh-huh. Or, or like, uh-huh. I don't know. Brasso's a good dude. You know, yeah. Brasso yeah. Yeah. still likes him. But uh, even Bix was tortured into revealing information about him. Yeah, I mean, and Bix probably is not like Bix's life and has been ruined basically because of Cassian, you know, and her association with him. So she's probably not too inclined to like him anymore. No. Also, can I just say, as much as I'm sad that Marva died, I'm glad that she died before the ISB got to her. Mm, because yeah. they were waiting as like like you know knowing that oh at some point we could like we could get we could yeah. use her for our purposes i'm glad that she didn't have to go through what bix went through yeah totally totally one of the lucky ones okay uh let's talk about a couple of the coruscant scenes oh I, I, we should mention by the way that Clea is like very upset that vel is there and like this is a break of protocol because i don't think vel has ever shown up at the store before so like well, that's, no... that's what i was yeah. saying about yeah. you know their secret meeting place yeah like... yeah, yeah yeah um she's she's broken protocol but like i think it's probably going to be okay 
Um, Again, she's Mon's cousin. She's yes. she's fancy. Let's talk about Mon. We go to Mon's apartment, and we see her child, Lita, is basically taking CCD class with all of her other uh, friends, right? Basically like Shandrillan religious school of some kind, right? Yes. And they're they're doing this the chant. They're doing this chant of like, we're all braided together and the braids are good and like all this stuff. And and so what you realize is that um she is into the old Chandrillan ways. And you know, Vel and Mon have a conversation about it and they talk about how like, yeah, like the, the kid the, this is all the rage with kids now. I do think, Patrick, this is a commentary on the fact that in our society, uh, many young people are into religion because it does offer certainty in the face of postmodernism. Do you know? Uh, And and I'm really stretching here, but I'm just saying, like, I think that uh, you would not expect Mon, by all accounts, is like a very progressive person, to have a child who's like super into this old religion. But um, I, I think it does make the dynamic more interesting. And, you know, to my point earlier about Mon and uh, her relationship with her daughter, like what I think it's clearly setting up for is a kind of tragic situation where Lita is more into the Davos Skeldon's child being wed at a, the age of 14, way more so than Mon is. Like, I think that's kind of what, and this is, right. this is what I was saying. Is like, I, I wish we knew more about what their dynamic was and their relationship to the Chandrillan ways. And this episode, we learned like that information a yeah. little bit. Right. And uh, that's, what's interesting because based on the conversation, in the previous episode, you would have imagined that, you know, when, uh, like when eventually Lita and Davos Gelden's son are introduced that like, Oh, Lita will probably be like really pissed about this, about being like forced into this old ritual and stuff like this and like hate her mom even more. And now seeing this, you realize like, oh, wait, no, she might just be into that Uh, because she's like, like she likes these old, these old rituals that Mon wanted to leave behind. Actually, this scene with their like, I guess the equivalent of like a Chandrillan like church group or whatever, it reminded me of a... David, did you watch The Americans? No, I did not. It was uh, a big blind spot for me. Uh, great. Genuinely one of my favorite shows of the past decade. But there's a – this isn't even like a little storyline. This, this is just a thing that happens in like over several seasons. But the – so the, there's the two main characters uh, on the show, uh, you know, the, the, the two Russian agents posing as Americans, Carrie uh, Russell and Matthew Reese. And then there's a point where their teenage daughter uh, starts going to church mm. and just like getting very into like, just, just becomes Christian. And obviously they are not remotely religious. They don't care about it at all. Yeah. And they're really freaked out because they're like, we thought we were raising our daughter, uh, like, you know, at, at least even though they don't know about, you know, who we, like what we really do, we thought we were raising her you know, like with our values, and now, and now she's here, like wanting to go on like like church trips to like uh you know to, to like help people in third world countries, and wants to like bring her her pastor over for dinner, and uh, it just it, it it reminded me of like a similar dynamic. Yeah, yeah. This scene, we also got a lot of detail from Mon about what exactly was going on and why she's freaking out about, out about the 400,000 credits. Uh, kind of 
interesting to put this detail in this part of the season like i don't know why they didn't like start with this like a few episodes ago you know it's it's kind of um i would say it's atypical of the show so far to to kind of draw out a mystery like this oh this is why she's you know so concerned about the four hundred thousand credits but um anyway we, we basically find out that she used to be able to move money really easily and, and then she has a became, big old trust fund yeah and then it became harder and there's 400,000 credits that are unaccounted for basically. And like, she needs to figure out a way to account for them. And if, uh, if she doesn't, she's going to get in big trouble because they're going to look and they're going to see 400,000 is missing. And that's why she needs to work with Davos Skeldon. And, yes. uh, there is a couple of nice touches in this scene. First of all, Vel is obviously very curious about what's actually going on because I think Vel's probably thinking to herself, Hey, I, I can access 400,000 credits. I don't know if you heard about this thing called Aldani, um, but I was responsible for that, you know? So maybe Vel's kind of thinking, maybe I could just patch up the 400,000 credits. I then, really hope we do get to see the scene or see, see the moment when Vel presumably eventually tells Mon that yeah. she did Aldani. Yeah, that will be very satisfying. And then I love this touch. Mon says, I found a solution. And literally, I think at that moment where she says that, in the background, behind Vel's shoulder, you see like all the little, you know, in, in, in because they're far away, like all the little girls from the CCD class like run out, uh, out of focus in the bokeh, right? And like it's like I found a solution. Oh, it's the thing that's running behind Vel's shoulder right now, and uh, that's just a nice like little touch uh, in terms of blocking that they did. So yeah, yeah, and I, and I think Genevieve O'Reilly plays this really well. Like, uh, Vel is pretty much the only person she can, e- even though she and Vel, neither of them is, is telling each other everything about, about, you know, what they're, you know, what they do, especially rebellion related and stuff like that. Uh, Vel is probably the only person in her life that she can actually kind of admit that, like, I'm in a lot of trouble, uh, and I'm really scared. Yeah. And, um, and she definitely, like, even though she's sitting in basically the exact same way, on I think the same couch that she was talking to Davos Skeldon in the previous episode, her demeanor is like is 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 so different mm-hmm. than than what it was last time, and she's she is so like visibly like just frightened about about her life and her child and the situation that she's ended up in, and like and and here I was like okay. I am feeling the 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 distress, and I understand this in a way that I wanted to a bit more the past couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's where we leave it. And you know, I think I've I've laid out where I think this plotline's going, which is like she's going to make the deal because Lita's going to be super into it. There's also a moment where Lita hugs Val and she gives her mom a dirty look. Yeah, gives her a little stank eye, which is just like wow. Anti Val really is so cool. Up. Yeah, Antivel's so cool. Not like you, mom slash mon. Anyway. More <laughs> more like mom mothma. <laughs> and that's the level of humor you can expect from decoding TV. This is pretty Or at least rough. my episodes. That was pretty rough, Patrick. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so there is one of the scene on Curacao with our favorite character, Cyril Karn. This week we get some more Karn tent with uh. Cyril Karn. On Coruscant. It was so good. Uh, he gets woken up during the night <laughs> by his mom. Yes. Good old Edie Karn, who uh whose hair is 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 uh not as neat and tidy as it usually is. Yes. And 
she says, hey, you got a phone call. And it's Linus Mosk. And this is really cool because Linus Mosk, obviously one of the uh, corpos that was in the first three episodes of the show uh, that helped Karn invade Ferex uh, to catastrophic effect. No one has encouraged Karn more than Linus Mosk. <laughs> That's right. And He's the Ma- guy who literally let Karn make his one and only inspiring speech to the troops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, Linus Mosk, played by uh, Alex Ferns, I would say has the best accent on the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, in- it's incredible. Whenever he talks, I'm, I'm just thrilled. Well— they have a conversation. He's clearly <laughs> the, there's bad reception. He's clearly in like an undesirable working situation. Like it's very loud. There's smelting going on. There's like lights and sparks everywhere. So we get the sense that he has he is no longer in a cushy corpo job. He is now very much uh, blue collar and in a really rough spot. It, it um, looks like he's in the middle of a war. Yeah, yeah, but but he's not. But he he's still on Warlana One, right? Uh, unclear. I don't remember exactly where the call came from, but he—he's. It's like they're struggling to even talk to each other. Like Moss can barely hear anything he's saying. But what you know, what we do learn, obviously, the fact that the call is occurring is that Moss still has some kind of loyalty to Cyril Karn, which is kind of sad. You know, like you would think that based on the events of the first three episodes, you know, Karn would be like persona non grata to Mosk, but I guess Mosk really believed in in the mission. And in Karn, you know, hashtag I believe in Cyril Karn. <laughs> Th- so, that's uh, that's another shirt that we'll uh, yeah we'll be releasing in the in the Decoding TV merch drop. Yeah, hashtag uh, Karn, uh, hashtag uh, justice for Karn. So uh, they have a conversation, and he says basically, I have news about Andor. Um, my and it's cool. Like he he says she still has an old partner working at the HQ night desk. So it's kind of interesting. Like he's acknowledging that there was a big transition to the Imperials, basically. And uh, he says the mother has passed away, and he might show up at the funeral. That's what he communicates to Karn. There is a big mystery that happens in this episode. I've read several TV recaps about episode eleven of Andor, and a lot of people are asking about this line that Edie Karn says in the episode. She says, "Quote." The mystery of your former triumphs have been vanquished, end quote. Now, that is a very strange line. First of all, it's grammatically incorrect because she says the mystery of your former triumphs, the the operating uh, verb should be has been vanquished. Like uh, the subject is mystery, not triumphs. So grammatically, it's wrong. Um, but then it's also like, what is she talking about? Because she's like, the mystery of your former triumphs have been vanquished. Now I can go to sleep. And it's a lot of people I've read this morning were asking, like, why, um, why, like, from Karn talking to Mosk, does she conclude, like, oh, I can go to sleep now? Like, f you, that that was stupid. I can go to sleep. Uh, well, now, but now I think I have a, an understanding of the answer to this question. But Patrick, before I go into it, what do you think is the meaning behind the line? The mystery of your former triumphs have been vanquished. Was that really the line? I'm pretty sure, yep. Have been vanquished? Um, the way I interpreted it uh, is that now she finally has more of an understanding uh, about like what he was up to and uh and 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 what seemed like his his basically uh his, his 
what was happening at his old job and and what his big mission was. And I think and I viewed it as she looks at it as like, oh, it's you're just like pathetically hunting for this guy in some now some some doofus in like an exploding building is like calling you up to to share that a guy's mom died. Like basically like I, I took it as, as as her being like, oh, this isn't very interesting at all. I, I I had assumed you were doing more important stuff. Never mind. I don't care. I'm done. Um. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. So so Sage Hyden weighed in on Twitter, and he <gasps> says, Sage, my my good friend. Yes, he says, quote. Uh, basically, what she's trying to say is, it's no wonder your life got fucked up if that's the guy you were working with. <laughs> um. So I thought that was a pretty good good way of interpreting it yeah um also you gotta bleep that david yes uh at to derek responded and said i think it's basically she didn't know anything about his life on morlana and now there's a phone call from a clear raving lunatic uh confirming for Edie that sarah was basically just wanking off out there <laughs> so that's another explanation of that line but it, it's a very weird line with weird syntax and grammar uh, and I thought it was worth pausing on just to reflect on like what exactly it is she's trying to say. Basically, you're right. Wow, that guy had no idea. Here, there was one other interpretation that I thought was interesting, which was um, uh, Nate writes, uh, "You you were merely boosted by more competent lackeys that you took the fall for," which is like I don't. That's a little bit of a stretch for me. I think it's more clear that it's like, oh, wow, that that person clearly had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> I have no respect for that person. So now I understand. Why you got here, basically, is kind of what she's trying to say. So, but it's a, it's a weird line. So, anyway, uh, Karn flashes his mom this very angry look. He's very irritated at this whole thing. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, is she going to harm uh, his mom? Is she, is she going to go, you know, uh, hurt her in some way? But nope, turns out he's just stealing a ton of credits from her safe. Uh, because presumably he's going to try to get to Ferrix to intercept Andor, right? What I did love about this is we then see, presumably, then that morning, uh, the following morning, because that was like during the night, uh, Edie head, it, it is, is all made up and like ready for the day. She heads off to do something at like the crack of dawn, and then Karn is just like, he's like dressed for work, but he's like, he clearly like, left for work but then is like hiding and waiting for her to leave so he can sneak back into the house and uh <laughs> which was great um I, I i love his like goofy little tie yes. uh in his work uniform but i also a thing that was just funny to me was um i i a couple days ago uh i i, I saw the 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 new james gray movie armageddon time david have mm-hmm. you seen it haven't seen it yet um the, this the tiniest spoiler. Um, uh, two or three times throughout the movie, the main character, who's like an eleven year old boy, um, he knows that he basically uh, sneakily like goes into his mom's jewelry box because he knows that she keeps some cash underneath the jewelry and go and like steals like her cash to use to buy stuff. And Cyril Karn does the exact same thing. He basically goes into her jewelry drawer to steal mm-hmm. her cash. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, he's just he he's just doing the same thing as like an eleven year old kid in this movie I just watched. Everything that he does is a way of kind of infantilizing him, basically. Like every yes. scene he's in. So all right. So that's all the non Luthan, non uh Cassian and or non Cassian stuff. Uh let's talk about Luthan. 
right? Let's let's talk about Luth. Oh, this is this is a good Luthan episode. It's a great Luthan episode. Luthan goes to visit Saw Guerrera again, and Saw has changed his mind since last time. He's like, "Hey, Anton Krieger, going to attack Spellhouse? I'm in, baby. I want that equipment." And now Luthan's he's got in those a, two X wings. Yeah, now Luthan's in the very awkward position of needing to say, "Don't go," because if you go, uh, ISB is going to realize something's up. Uh, or, or, or rather, no, no, sorry, sorry. If you go, if Sagarero goes, all his men will be killed because ISB knows that to expect an attack, and they're going to be prepared for it. And this is some classic Tony Gilroy dialogue in this scene, right? Because they're kind of ne- debating the ethics of whether or not this should happen or what should happen. There's a lot of great lines, like uh, where Saw keeps saying thirty men, um, and then Luthen keeps chiming in and Krieger. You know, like that's kind of a very like. Aaron Sorkin esque, you know, Tony Gilroy esque, like pitter patter between the two two characters. Right, it also makes you very clear that, like, I uh, or very aware that 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 Luthen, as much as he is willing to sacrifice people, is aware of like always the exact number of people mm-hmm. that are going mm-hmm. to be sacrificed. Yeah, like yeah. he's like he doesn't do it thoughtlessly. Yeah. Um, so he explains the dynamic to Saw Guerrero where he's like, yeah, uh, I have someone on the inside. I spent years cultivating it. And if we uh, if we don't attack, then it's going to burn that source. And that's going to be bad for the long game. And so Saw, I was hoping you wouldn't need to know about this. Uh, and I, I, you know, I was going to make the decision for you. And then Saul's like, well, wait, like, wouldn't you sacrifice me? And Luthen's like, no, I would never sacrifice you because you can actually hurt me. <laughs> Um, yeah, because like, and, didn't he say that Anto Krieger, like, doesn't know his face? Right, he they've, said ne- they, they've never met. They've so. been in the same room, but Krieger didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I mean, you got a whole thing where like uh, Saw is is saying like, "Hey, maybe your ISB." Uh, we, we we get a nice thing where um, did he call? So Saw's like, I guess like little. Like his, his his like general or whatever, uh, the guy with like the tubes coming out of his face, who I believe yeah. Luthen just calls tubes. Tubes, <laughs> and um, but like th- that's a character who also appeared in Rogue One, uh, and just looks awesome. And I'm happy that he's back here. But uh, I I, I like the <laughs> Luthen just says that uh, just like accuses tubes of of basically like being a traitor. Uh, and like giving him uh, and like feeding Luthen uh, info, basically as a way to get Tubes to step forward so Luthen can grab his gun and point it at Saw, and uh, it's just it's it's some some cool tense stuff. And also, I'm I'm glad that that Forrest Whitaker, you know, got got like some good scenes to play because he's in like two scenes this season mm-hmm. and uh, as one of the higher profile actors in the show, an Academy Award winning actor. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a couple of other cool things about the scene that I wanted to point out. One of them is, um, by the time we meet Saw Guerrera in uh, Rogue One, he's basically like a destroyed person, uh, extremely super paranoid. And I would argue this scene helps explain how he got that way, um, because he's like, oh, so Luthen could be against me oh so tubes could be against me you know like all and it's kind of like oh it's sowing the seeds of like saw Guerrero turning on people who are loyal to him or who want to help him you know getting that weird tentacle monster thing to invade people's brains even when they're coming to him to like like and saying i'm on your side yeah yeah and (laughs) 
Luthen says, if I were ISB saw, why wouldn't I just send you in there with him? And my response to that is, well, Luthen, maybe you're playing the long, long game as ISB. You're trying to get in good with Saw so that you can infiltrate Saw's organization, you know? That would be hilarious if that was the reveal, by the way. If right. Luthen's, Luthen's been working for ISB this whole time, and he's playing the long... He's a, basically a triple agent. Right? And he's also a secret Jedi. Yes. <laughs> well, the, 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 and here's, here's the thing. Oh, also, if he were a secret Jedi, maybe he would be doing some Jedi mind tricks. Mm. Yeah. That probably would have come in handy in several instances. Well, he probably has some kind of code around using it or something like that. So. Uh, wait, wait. You, do you really think so? Uh, Luthen <laughs> seems like a guy he'll do anything to get. Uh, he seems pretty Machiavellian mm-hmm. uh, in his mm-hmm. uh, in his dealings. But uh, but once like what I love about this scene is it's once again showing you just like how incredibly difficult like putting this rebellion together is and operating in secret is it's like no one trusts each other people are like you know willingly sacrificing their allies because it's like it is like they this it's war and uh and and they have to basically put it put aside like emotions and personal feelings and and just try to think strategically this is uh, this is all the stuff that Luthen was saying in his monologue last episode. Yeah. So that is the Luthen Saw stuff, but it seems like he has convinced Saw to not attack Spellhouse because he doesn't want him to lose more people, and he's also convinced Saw to not help out Anto Krieger. So probably not going to be Anto Krieger. Huge bummer. Uh, there's a great exchange at the end where. Saw says, you know, for the greater good, they're not going to warn Anto Krieger. And then uh, Luthen says, call it what you will. And Saw says, let's call it war, uh, end quote, which is great dialogue. All right. I think that's everything other than the the Andor Melshi stuff, right? I think that's everything. David. Yes. David. David, how are you forgetting this? Tell me. Well, then Luthen leaves... Oh yeah, and he goes into space. Yes, and we have the most overtly Star Wars scene we've had in the entire series so far. We have a space battle with a tractor beam and lasers. So, I'm sorry, I forgot about this. This uh, scene was incredible. I I was cackling with glee watching this scene. Right, so. Luthen tries to leave, and he is approached by a Cantwell-class arrestor cruiser. It, this, it looks kind of like a Star Destroyer, but yes. it's got like a big like dish on the front. It has multiple dishes, I think. And it, it does. Well, it's like th- one big central dish and then like side dishes as well. Yes. Um, so he is approached by this Cantwell-class cruiser, arrestor cruiser. Uh, and this is uh, named after Colin Cantwell, who is one of the designers who built the first model of the Star Destroyer. Um, or this was supposed to be uh, the Star Destroyer. Like, it was a first pass of the Star Destroyer. Oh. I also believe that the Cantwell-class Arrestor Cruiser uh, previously was glimpsed in Solo, A Star Wars Story. It was supposed to have a more significant role in that movie, but did not actually... Uh, the scene was cut from the movie. Interesting. Um, but so this is not the first time we've seen a Cantwell class arrestor cruiser in the Star Wars universe. But I will say the reveal of the Cantwell class arrestor cruiser in this show 
was completely badass. It's like, it looks like a mini Star Destroyer, right? And it's like uh, very formidable compared to Luthen's tiny ship. And of course, Luthen has prepared for this situation, right? Luthen um, seems to be ready for everything. Luth- yeah. Luthen, despite being uh, something of a jerk who is still trying to kill the hero of the show, <laughs> is also one of the coolest guys in the galaxy. 100%. 100%. Honestly, I watched, I watched this scene. And not to, not to skip ahead, but I'm like, man, Han Solo was kind of a chump because <laughs> uh, he should he should have this stuff that Luthen has. Mm-hmm, he would be, mm-hmm. he, like, if this stuff exists now, like, man, Luth- Luthen's just better at this than most other characters we've met in Star Wars before. Yeah, in Star Wars, uh, uh, in Andor Episode Eleven, right where Luthen is encountering this arrestor cruiser. Uh, there is this extremely tense buildup where he's being held by a tractor beam and he, he's getting the false credentials that he needs. And says he's, he's from power- Alderaan. He's powering up these countermeasures. And we're like, what are, what are countermeasures? We don't know what that is. Right. And had, it, they have a thing where it, he makes it look like one engine is like a, yeah. is like failing. Yeah. And he's uh, like, Hey, I need some help with this engine. And so uh, meanwhile, like the people on the ship are like escalating. They're like, should we send some, a boarding party? Should we, you know? And he's like, yeah, why, why not? We need the practice. Always a great well, opportunity to show um, how justice is administered in the empire. Right. So you, you get yeah. a, a perfect example of like, you know, the empire's whole way of thinking where his credentials clear they're yeah. like oh yeah checks out uh he is he is who he says he is and they're like bring him in anyway yeah why like, not? Le- like like doesn't matter like we just love ruining people's days and <laughs> uh and just bring them in for like an inspection yeah like the they love the exercise of power and it's a re- again i think it's astonishing that andor is a very clearly uh anti-government uh, anti-police show overall, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, Luthen finally deploys these countermeasures and I had, I, I had no idea what I was prepared for. I was like, is this a missile? Is this whatever? He launches these countermeasures and it is incredible. Like it basically disintegrates the tractor dish. It's like all these, like what look like just shards of like, like a, yeah. it's like tons and tons of knives just like yes. shooting out the back of and his ship. And you see them coming out and they look innocuous and then they like start just disintegrating this tractor beam. And you can tell like the people on the ship were like completely unprepared. They're like, I can't believe someone would even attempt this. Right. Um, and then the TIE fighters come out and Luthen just, zoop, he like goes into like attack mode, uh, starts taking out the TIE fighters. And then he starts powering up this like, weapon and you don't know what it is i'm like i don't know what that is but i bet you it's going to be extremely cool when it when it (laughs) pops out of the side also i love that the sides of his ship they kind of become these shields they kind of like like uh like like move up into a shield position to deflect Mm -hmm. uh you know blaster shots and when you see the close-up of one of these pieces like emerging from from like this hole uh i was like oh oh is it going to be some kind of like sonic grenade you know like yeah. we saw you know uh Django fett have in uh in attack of the clones uh no it is way cooler than that it is um two laser beams one on either side shoots out and he basically does like a barrel roll and just slices the tie fighters in half and th- oh and then and then immediately jumps to light speed and he's out of there and and then you get you get this great shot looking in the like pretty much the windshield uh 
of of this this uh what was it called again the Cantwell Yeah, Cantwell class arrestor cruiser. The Cantwell class arrestor cruiser. You, you get the shot looking in the window of like the commander of the ship as in the reflection in the glass you just see the like the debris and like the smoke and 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 everything from like all the destruction loot yeah, just, just caused. Like puffs of, little puffs of smoke that yeah. these tie fighters used to be. This guy is just stunned. Like this went for <laughs> like this might as well just be like like Imagine if, like, a traffic cop were just be- being like, eh, the person's, like, two miles over the speed limit. I'll take them in. And then suddenly, a minute later, like, their car, ha- like, you know, has <laughs> exploded and all yeah. this. Like, it escalated so fast and so far beyond anything they imagined. They, yeah. like, they don't even know how to react. It rules. It's amazing. It's an incredible scene. And huge Cyril Karn from Episode 3 vibes of for that guy who is running the arrestor cruiser you know yes uh, he's like i've made a huge tiny mistake um and, and uh i do wonder like other than being incredibly badass like i do wonder if there was some purpose to the scene narratively like um it's, it's showing you like luthan knows how to handle himself but i wonder if like oh they're gonna be able to trace luthan somehow because of this incident right like uh and luthan has now put himself in danger so we'll see right i i, I mean this is the closest call we've seen luthan have yeah um i i I think even closer than than in episode three uh on ferrix with with cassian because like he's just here having this tense meeting with saw guerrera and then suddenly while just 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 cruising you know through space just like uh just like like any normal person um suddenly he just had bad luck basically that the empire just happened to show up and um and he almost got caught and so look if the purpose of the scene is just to show both the the Empire's power and overreach and just the danger of existing in the galaxy, uh, and, and then also to, you know, show how totally prepared Luthen is, then um then I'm fine with that. But uh, but it, it is interesting that this is one of the rare times in this in the eleven episodes we've seen that the show that that a show that has constantly been doing things that w- where we've been like, I've never seen that in Star Wars, or that doesn't feel like the Star Wars I'm used to. This is the one time they're they're like, okay, let's go full Star Wars for a few minutes here. <laughs> yeah, and it's glorious. It's glorious. No it complaints. Is. No complaints. Right. But, but, but again, this is this is what we like from Star Wars. They're showing us new things. It's exciting and adventurous. Uh, this is not the Star Wars where it's just like, oh, it's. It's ships we know are like, oh, it's characters we know just hitting like nostalgia buttons for us. Like uh, this was like genuinely exciting. Not since uh, Darth Maul took out his dual sided lightsaber. Have I been excited by dual lasers in Star Wars? Uh, then in episode 11 of Andor where Luthen comes out with this dual laser part out of his ship. I wonder if those lasers go on forever, if they're kind of like lightsabers hanging off the edge you know i i I was wondering how far they extended wait wait david you mean you were not absolutely riveted uh by uh by the vision of dark ray in episode nine where she has a double-bladed red lightsaber Mm, but with like a hinge on it (laughs) uh you mean like the eight seconds that that was on screen no unfortunately it wasn't yeah oh would have been cool though would have been nice would have been nice would have been nice Let's talk about the titular character, Cassian Andor, this final plot line. Uh, they escape from Narkina 5. They might well, have... well, they escape from 
the, the prison, prison on yes. Narkina 5. Yes. And then they uh, happen upon two alien creatures um, who, who are, are so great, who have have names. Dewey, Pamular, and Freedy uh, are the names of the characters. And they speak in this kind of interesting cadence, right? Where I, I, I mean, if you put the subtitles on, it says uh, they're speaking in Narkinian. Yes, yes. Um, so it's kind of a combination of English, but it's a little bit more poetic and sing-songy, basically. Well, um, it, it seems like at first you hear them actually fully talking in Narkinian, mm-hmm. like you can't understand it. And then uh, Dewey has can speak kind of broken English. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think he's switching between the two languages. I see, I see. Cause, I see. And, and Freedy, it seems like, does not speak any English, are our, our basic right. Uh, yes. and, and only speaks Narkinian because Dewey is the only one who actually talks to Cassian and Melshi. Yeah. I thought this happened – I watched this scene like three to four times to try to understand exactly what happened, and it was a little bit confusing. But I think the the thrust of it is, hey, like we could kill these guys and turn them in for a reward, um, or we could say, screw the Empire. They've poisoned our water with all their mining and building and stuff. And let's just let these guys go instead. That that will be the best revenge on the empire. That's kind of was my takeaway from it. Yes, what did you what did you get? Yes, uh, it it was a thing where narratively the scene was not quite as clear as it could have. As, as in, like like why they they were let free is not as clear as it could be because again, it yeah. is also a big weird alien uh, with like limited English saying this stuff and so you're trying to like interpret what it's saying but and also like the intention of it and i'm like did they let get let go like kind of easily but the yeah. thing that i will say about the scene is first of all they so they finally climb over this giant rock face yes and then they see that there's this these two aliens and they've got a quad jumper like a little a little ship yeah um, quad jumper first introduced in star wars episode seven the force awakens by the way that's the first time we saw that ship and so it's a, it's a nice time and some people have pointed out by the way that uh, the quad jumper was from Force Awakens. These Narkinians look like kind of Dexter Jester esque aliens. They do a little bit. And yeah, and and so between a big Dexter Jester fan, yeah, I I like that. Between the quad jumper from Episode uh, Seven, the Dexter Jester quasi body reference from the prequels, and now obviously the show taking place. I'm sorry, right in the lead up into Episode uh, Four. Uh, kind of uh, the scene in some ways ties together all three trilogies, Patrick. So I, I love that. But I think one thing that we skipped over is uh, Melshi just starts booking it yes. to, to the quad jumper. And yeah. Cassie is like, okay, okay fine. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll run along with you. And then there's a, they have this like trap set A booby up. trap. Yes. Yeah. Where these like white gooey nets yeah. spring out <laughs> yeah. and like one like totally grabs like each uh, uh both, both cassian and melshi and it's like suddenly like they're all wet from this net uh it's it's, it's almost like a silicon type thing yeah it's um it's such a it's just like a weird cool little thing that i haven't seen before and then also when um you know, when Dewey wants, he just like hits a button and just suddenly retracts the nets immediately. <laughs> yeah. They're great. Yeah. It's yeah. uh and so like so I was I was able to forgive being a little bit narratively unclear about uh about some of the scene because the aliens were so wonderful to look at and listen to, and the gooey nets were so great. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, awesome nets, awesome booby trap. Uh, also shows that Andor like is as we already know, like very smart. He he was not like let's just run in there because he knows that there might be danger, and so he's he's a careful dude, and he was he was upset when Melshi ran in there. Okay, but the aliens agree to take them to Niamos on this rickety ship that's falling apart. Um, they get to Niamos. Andor infiltrates the hotel room that he was in before. Where there's some new weird alien sleeping in that bed. And I wish we got a better look at it because it yeah. looks interesting. There's two aliens and they look like they're of different species. So like Niamos, really a place for interspecies romance, I think we've learned. Yeah. So, uh, and anyway, he goes and he like opens up his little, his, his, his secret box, which he's like left in a compartment in the bathroom shower area. Uh, there's a couple of cool details in the secret box. There's like a blaster, um, couple blasters, maybe I think, I don't, I don't, I, th- I think one be... blaster, a lot of money. And yeah. then, uh, and then Nemec's, uh, manifesto. manifesto because he like opens it and you hear Nemec speaking. It's apparently it's an audiobook manifesto, by the way, that we uh, now also know that so, he, I guess was just dictating into this yeah. machine. So he gets his credits. Hopefully he hooked up those, uh, Narkinians with some of that sweet, sweet cash from Aldani for their troubles, but we don't see that. And then uh, he places a call and he's he wants to tell Marva like I'm coming home, but like his colleague tells him Marva's dead. Um, and then he has a conversation with Melshi where Melshi's yes. like, "We need his to friend, help you. his, yeah, his friend uh, uh, Zanwan." Yeah, uh, and you know he's like, "Hey, no names," and you know Zanwan won't get the get won't get the message, and Zanwan keeps calling him Cass, but he's like, "Dude, your mom's dead. Like the names aren't important at this point. Your mom's dead." And so uh, obviously, I think Cassian's going to come home next episode. There is a scene where Melshi's like, hey, we got to tell people about what's going on in our Arkina 5. It's a little bit, I think the purpose of this dialogue scene is just to separate Melshi and Andor because uh, otherwise there's no reason why Melshi wouldn't go with Andor to uh, Ferex, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I don't think, I don't know why Melshi would go to Ferex with him because if he's like, yeah, so I want to go home to my mom's funeral, but also the place has been like taken over by Fair the enough. empire yeah. with really intense security. I feel like Melshi would be like, no, there's a million other planets that I could go yeah, to instead. Yeah. I, I guess yeah. So it's like it's like there. It wouldn't make sense for Melshi to go with Andor, basically. So it's like you need rather than just him being like bye, like you you have some kind of purpose for him, and then like it makes sense when they reunite again that they're both on the side of uh, of the rebellion, right? Yeah. Um. But yeah. But yes, yeah, some people have pointed out the similarities between this beach scene and like in terms of framing and the scene on the beach in Rogue One where. Uh, Andor and Jin Erso perish. Um, so, anyway, uh, like is, visually, is, it, is it just oh, oh, visually? Yeah, yeah, visually, just like they're on a beach, and the the over the shoulder shot kind of looks kind of similar. The angle of the beach looks kind of similar. It's like um, kind of the sun setting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and that is the episode, Patrick. Yeah, and uh, and it looks like next week. Everything is going to come to a head on Ferex. It's going to be a funeral for the ages. Everyone's coming. I think it's hilarious to think back to, like, after episode three and four, we were like, are we ever going to go back to Ferex again on this show? Like, maybe yeah, we're never going to. be a waste of money for them to build all those sets <laughs> only for three episodes? So, don't worry. What, any other thoughts on this episode? I thought episode 11 of Andor was. Uh, pretty strong obviously a very transitional setup episode and that's kind of what we have to like 
deal with and are accustomed to now watching the show is you're going to get a couple of episodes setting up and then you're going to get like a uh, concluding episode that really is satisfying and ties things together. That's been the pattern of Andor. As far as setup episodes go, this is a decent one. I think we got some really great character development, some great moments, a uh, spectacular action scene with Luthen. Uh, so I thought it was pretty great. Any thoughts on the episode, Patrick? I, I totally agree. I mean, this is an episode that's pretty, that's largely about, I, mean, I imagine like from the writer's perspective, moving all the pieces into place for the finale. Yeah. And, uh, and it does that while still giving us like good character moments. Uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, fixing some of like what, what we felt wasn't entirely working with the Mon Mothma stuff. Obviously, having you know one of the coolest action sequences in in the show so far, and um and and you know this is like I imagine where where the finale will have to get to is this season is pretty much about uh taking Cassie and Andor from a guy who basically just wants to be on his own, who doesn't want to be involved in anything, uh, is only really looking out for himself and then his mom. Uh, and then getting him to the point where he is basically radicalizing him over the course of the season. Uh, just it, this is like Cassian's tour of uh, of the various like uh, the the Empire's atrocities across across the galaxy. And, yeah. and and you look like thinking of this like final scene with him, like how utterly heartbreaking the situation is. Where it's like he did the Aldani heist. He he got out of there. He got a bunch of money. He just wanted to go home and be like mom. Let's go. Let's go somewhere nice, and let's like just peace out and 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 relax in comfort for the rest of our lives. And then she won't go because she's all about like rebelling now. He goes, tries to go on vacation, gets imprisoned, totally meaninglessly, gets stuck in prison, has to escape from prison. Then he escapes from prison, calls up his mom, and she has died. He basically, like, because he was looking out for himself and uh, and just wanted to escape and go off somewhere else, he basically missed being with his mother when she passed away. Uh, and now he's here, um, and he's just like, I guess I have to, I have to go home now, and I, I have to face all of this stuff that I left behind. This is one of the big, bold messages of Andor, is that it is impossible to not choose a side. Like you may think, oh, I don't really like thinking about politics. I don't like talking about politics. You know, uh, I, I just let that all play out on its own. But the incredible message of Andor is, hey, guess what? There's no such thing as not choosing a side because not choosing a side is choosing a side. Uh, it is basically a vote for the status quo. And it's really an amazing it's a, message. It's like silence yeah. is complicity thing. Yeah, yeah. It's really an amazing message, I think, um, coming from a show from from Disney and in the Star Wars universe. It's obviously very much in keeping with some of the themes of other Star Wars films. Like, they've always been about this kind of... They've always had these kinds of themes. Um, but I think it's really vividly brought to life in the show. Uh, and... It's really an important message for the kind of the current times we're in right now. So, any predictions for the finale, Patrick Williams? Well, David, I think I think Kiro is gonna be a thing again. You know, I, I uh, was about to say my one big prediction is that uh, Cyril Karn and Dedra Miro are going to once again be on the same planet 
in the same town. Yep. Yep. And will probably cross paths. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and the question, you know, some people have predicted that maybe Cyril Karn is going to end up foiling whatever Miro was going for, which would be really satisfying, I think. That would be really fun to see. It it, it would be, because I know the thing that I've been reading, like, every interview with Tony Gilroy I can. And a thing that I've heard him say when he's asked about, like, Karn and Miro, he's like, Miro is a full fascist. Karn, he, and, he, and I believe the way he described Karn is he says Karn is unformed. Like mm-hmm. he he likes order uh, and 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 like following rules and and stuff like that. But he is not he is not as as, as far down that path as Dedra Miro currently is. Mm-hmm. So he, I mean, he is basically uh, like a guy watching a lot of like troubling right wing videos on YouTube, um, <laughs> and it's like. This, this doesn't look good, um, but uh, but there's still. The, the, I guess the, I'm not saying he's going to become a hero or anything like that, but it's just it's interesting the way that Tony Gilroy is thinking of that character. Yeah. Where he's like he's on a bad path, but he's not the full fascist that Dedra is yet. Yet, I'm really curious. Like Luthen is either going to go himself or send probably someone like Vel or you know Sinta's already there to Ferex. To intercept Cassian, right? Like Cassian, we know Cassian's going to go there. It's Marva's funeral. He's going to be in disguise. He's going to be wearing a hood over his head, and that's going to throw them all off. So Sinta's already there. Vel's probably going to show up. Luthen might show up, right? They're going to try to kill Cassian, probably, right? Is kind of what we see. Probably. Um, and Miro uh- might try to like capture one or like all parties involved. You know, like it's. <laughs> I just I have no idea what's going to like it's the collision of all these different plot lines happening at once. Um, right, and this is and because they do establish that uh Marva was like a, you know, like a big an essential member of the community uh in, in this town that I imagine the funeral will be well attended that uh th- this will probably be happening during a like a public event of some kind. And uh, that everyone will be going to. Yeah. Um, also, it makes me wonder now, like, does Cassian, like, actually want to join the rebellion? Like, what else think, is he going to do? I don't think it's going to happen by next episode. You know, I don't think he's going to go to Luthen and give a speech and being like, you're right. At first, I was not ready, but now I'm ready. I don't think it's going to happen. Like, you know, that's my guess. Based on what's, I, I don't think he's quite there yet. Like. Maybe, maybe be, the reason I could believe it is because he's basically been broken down to nothing at this right. point, right? Like he has lost everything. He's lost his family. His friends hate him. Um, and also the Empire is responsible for almost everything bad that's happened to him this season. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I think even when he's on the beach with Melshi, you know, Melshi's like, Melshi's like I got it. We got to tell everyone. And he's not like... Andor is not like, yeah, like, here's a plan for doing that. You know, like, I, I think he's still very focused on himself at this point. Well, he did just find out his mom died. Yes. <laughs> so if yes, I had gotten true. that news, I yeah. wouldn't be like, oh, oh, yeah, cool. Well, right. Let's do this. I'd be like, dude, give me a second. I've, yeah, I've got yeah. a, I, I have grief. So if if he does be like, okay, if he, if he does turn and say like, uh, yes, I should join the Empire, you know. I could buy it, but I just it doesn't feel emotionally right to me at this point yet. But you know who knows. Um, either way, we're going to be here bringing you 
uh, an in-depth discussion of the season finale of Andor season one. Uh, Patrick, any closing thoughts on season one of Andor before we get to the finale and thoughts on the show so far or what you're looking forward to? It is just, um, I really wondered if I was ever going to be excited about Star Wars again, like new Star Wars. And it feels so good uh, for that to be the case. Um, and also, I I really w- would never have predicted that a Star Wars show would be a contender for like my favorite show of 2022. Um, and here we are. This has just been, uh, this show has been a joy to watch. It's been a joy talking about it with you every week. Um, I'm so glad that, you know, uh, obviously for our podcast that like the, the show turned out as well as it did. So we're enjoying this so much, but, um, no, like, look, and or when it was announced, I had no expectations for this. I was like, that sounds unnecessary. And uh, <laughs> and now here we are. Yeah. Uh, this is the show that has reignited my love and fascination with Star Wars again. Um, it's my favorite show on TV right now. I really enjoyed recapping it with you. And a huge thanks to all of our listeners at Decoding TV uh, for making the show possible with their feedback, their feed, uh, their ideas and their thoughts. We really appreciate it. But uh, Andor. It's a great television show. It has so much to say, and it just happens to be set in a universe where Senator Jar Jar Binks might show up at any second. So, okay. Oh, that's oh, going to bring us in. Yeah. That's going to happen in the finale. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap things up. You can find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at decodingtv. And next week we'll be discussing the finale um, and we'll have more thoughts about like any bonus episodes or other things like that. We'll announce that next week on the show uh, and any thoughts on what Patrick and I might be doing after this, but uh, we'll talk more about that on next week's episode of the podcast. So be sure to tune in, tell your friends podcast.decodingtv.com. He is Patrick Willems. I am David Chen. We'll see you later.